Okay, so we are coming into the next in our series of, uh, of why uh, Jesus answers Job. And the book of Job is uh, a book full of the stuff of life, the tough things in life. And we've been uh, looking a bit about some of the things, Job's struggles, some of the things he says, some of his great cries. And this morning, we're going to come to one that I think is probably his greatest cry. And um, it's around the area of life after death. And so we're going to read a couple, uh, we're going to read one verse from Job chapter 14, verse 14, and then we're going to read some verses from John chapter 11. They're going to come up behind me on the screen so you'll be able to follow. This is what it says. This is what Job says. In the midst of his turmoil, this is Job's great cry. If a man dies, will he live again? Then we read in John chapter 11, starting at verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Mary, Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord Martha said to Jesus, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Two remarkable passages. One verse which sums the cry of every human being through all the ages. And the second, a glorious answer from Jesus Christ. It was Caesar Borgia uh, who echoed the heart cry of many when he said this, I've provided in the course of my life for everything except death, and now, alas, I am to die entirely unprepared. You know, we live in a world where we're all constantly challenged to think of our future. For some of us, it's in the area of employability, uh, in terms of getting qualifications. Uh, some of you are in the midst of exams at the moment. For others, it's in terms of experience, getting experience in the workplace. We're encouraged to think about our health. There's inc increasing problems with weight, with obesity. We're being told, look after your body, make sure uh, that you eat properly, be healthy. We're constantly uh, encouraged to think about uh, our finances in terms of our future. For lots of us, the whole issue of pension provision is a hot topic. It's in a lot of the papers at the moment. What's going to happen um, to our pensions depending on whether we vote in or out uh, in the coming referendum? 
But no one is challenging us to think about the most important issue of all. What happens when we die? There's almost universal silence, apart from a a vague hope that if there is a God, it'll somehow be all right in the end. Martin Lloyd-Jones sums up our folly. A modern man makes preparation and arrangements for practically everything, except his dying. He makes... He even makes arrangements for his funeral, but not for his dying. He takes out insurance to look after his burial. He will insure everything, make arrangements for everything except the most important thing of all, the very act of dying. You know, one of the things I love about the Bible is that the Bible never ducks the issue. The Bible never pulls any punches. The Bible deals with the very nitty-gritty issues of life. And this morning, we're going to unpack Job's cry, is there life after death? And the Bible gives us an answer. You see, this is the question that every person from every generation, every culture, every age group has has thought and cried at some point, what happens when I die? It's the question that resonates in every human heart that's faced with suffering and pain and facing up to the seemingly pointlessness of human existence. And within the pages of the Bible, we find the answer. And so this morning, like Job, we're going to face up to death. I don't know about you, but it sounds like you sort of think, oh, that's a pretty grim thing to talk about, Steve. Well, I want to tell you, from a young age, I, uh, I started to face up to death. I remember being in a geography class, uh, and I would have been probably uh, 14, 15, may have just started what were O-levels at the time, but GCSEs now. And there were two boys that used to sit behind me, a couple of seats behind me in my class, David and Glenn, in my geography class. And it came to the end of the year, and neither of them were there. David had been killed in a motorbike accident, and Glenn had been out in the woods with two of my friends, and they'd been glue sniffing, and he died. Just remember that. I just remember the poignancy of turning around as a, just in my teens, looking around and them not being there. I've watched grandparents pass away, watched my father die. Good friends. I've got a picture here. This uh, I've had in my Bible, and it's a picture of three of us, three friends. We were, led the youth group together in the church in Swansea. Chris, Adrian, and myself. Chris was killed in a car accident in his early 20s. And Adrian died of cancer in his 40s. Good friends of mine. I've watched lots of people around me die. My mother. I remember, sort of, this sort of sums it up for me, really, because... When you're, you're young, you tend not to think about these things. And I remember having my tonsils out. You remember me telling the story. And as, as I was having my tonsils out as a young boy, I remember being in hospital, and there were about 10 of us, uh, maybe 10, 12 of us, sitting in a row on, uh, on uh, benches 
uh, outside uh, the operating theater. And I was probably, I think I was probably about number nine, and I was very close to the end, last but one. And uh, what was happening, there was a nurse, a male nurse, I remember, and he was really funny. He was telling us all jokes. <clears throat> and uh, he was really amusing. We were all laughing. But what was happening, one by one, <clears throat> at this end, they were going in for surgery, and then they were, they were coming out. They were being wheeled in front of us. So bit by bit, his jokes got less and less funny the closer I got to this end. And I just remember thinking, in the end, I'm just thinking, all I'm thinking is, Oh, my word. What's go- what, are you watching? They go, and, and they're coming out like, oh, my. Sometimes life feels a little like that. You start off, you're quite young, and it feels like there's lots of people in front of you. There's a lot of life ahead of you. And there are moments you, you catch glimpses, you think, oh, wow, gosh. But actually, the older you get, you feel like it's like ten green balls. You're thinking, oh, gosh, nine green balls. Wow, I'm number ten. Oh, what's, what's going to happen next? And you... Life catches you like that, and you start to think about what's going to happen when I die. You start to face up to death. Part of my responsibility as a pastor in a church is to prepare people to face up to the reality of death and ready them to meet God. I've watched people handle it really well, and I've watched others struggle, and I've seen all the variations in between over the years. I've seen the whole gamut of human emotions. And let me tell you, Job is no different to us. Job's painfully aware of the brevity of life. He says this, Man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. He springs up like a flower and withers away like a fleeting shadow. He does not endure. Job knows his days are in God's hands. And we find him as, he's, as, as his experience of life has turned sour. Everything has gone wrong. He's lost his wealth. He's lost his home. His kids have died. He's in a pretty grim place. Physically, he's in a lot of pain. He's racked with illness, suffering terribly. His relationship with his friends is broken and damaged. And we see him coming to terms with this and... Seemingly, death is just round the corner for him, and we see his reactions. First of all, we see fear. Job is fearful. It was Woody Allen who once said, it's not that I'm afraid to die, I just don't want to be there when it happens. And we would all echo that, wouldn't we? I'd rather not be there. And we see Job's fear of death when he says this, what I feared has come upon me in Chapter 3, verse 25, and he's just seen his kids, he's heard the news, his children have died, and he said, what I feared has come upon me. I've watched all sort of people gripped with fear over death. I remember my dad's mum, terrified, absolutely terrified about the thought of death. And so you couldn't talk about it. If there was anything like that came up, she would shut up shop and she would put her fingers in it. She didn't want to hear. You see, one of the signs of our, our fear of death is our unwillingness to talk seriously about it. And denial can take many forms. It was C.H. Spurgeon who put it like this. I, <clears throat> I should like you to be able to think of death. 
He that is afraid of solemn things has probably solemn reason to be afraid of them. Fear can lurk behind lots of corners, behind lots of closed doors. For many of us, it looms large, particularly in the dark recesses of the night when we find uh, a lump or a mole or there's something playing on our minds and our minds run into all sorts of places. We can be very fearful. Job is fearful. And yet his reaction changes as his suffering becomes increasingly prolonged as it runs on and on, week after week after week, and it shows no sign of ending. He starts to view death, not fearfully, but he starts to view death as a friend. Some of you may not have heard, to, heard of Kurt Cobain. He was uh, a singer for a band called Nirvana many years ago, and he committed suicide. But before he committed suicide, he said this. This is what he said. If you die, you're completely happy, and your soul somewhere lives on. I'm not afraid of dying. For him, death was a friend. Job was starting to view death as a friend. I've been, I've led many funerals. I've been a guest at many funerals. I've listened to people talk about death after loved ones have died. Some of it has been deeply profound and moving. And some of it has been a bit troubling. It's not uncommon, you know, to hear people talk about death as personified death as though it were a friend knocking at the door. I don't know if you, some of you won't have seen this film, but it was a film many years ago called The Meaning of Life by Monty Python, and it was a series of sketches. But one of them, at the end, is a, is a dinner party. And in this dinner party, these people are having a dinner party, and there's a knock at the door. And uh, the guy goes to open the door, and at the door is the Grim Reaper. And uh, he's got this big hood on, and he's got this big scythe. And um, the guy says, hello. He says, I am the Grim Reaper. He goes, oh, oh, uh, have you come up at the hedge? <laughs> and he says, oh, well, well, you better come in, Mr. Reaper. So he comes in, and the, 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 it unfolds. But it's, it's all a bit of a joke. It's all a bit funny, and it, uh, it, it turns out that um, and the Grim Reaper uh, says, right, you've got you've to follow me. And, and one, of the, one of the characters says, oh, well, let's put a bit of a dampener on the evening. Somehow we, we, we laugh and we, we joke about it, and somehow death somehow is a friend that's going to, uh, it'll all be okay, it's okay, uh, death's going gonna to sort it all out, my pain will end and, and it will be fine. Seems to me there's an orchestrated campaign being run at the moment that's looking to uh, uh, legalizing assisted suicide. You read about the work of Dignitas in Switzerland. Somehow we ought to embrace death rather than fear it. You see, when there seems to be no end to his suffering, Job starts to welcome the relief death will bring. And this is what he says. I prefer death rather than this body of mine. I despise my life. As a result of death, I would be asleep and at rest, he says. He goes on. Oh, that I might have my request, that God would grant what, what I hope for, that God would be willing 
to crush me, to let loose his hand and cut me off. Of course, death is only a friend if you're certain what's going to happen when you die. And as the story unfolds, it's made clear to Job that death is no friend, rather death is a foe. You see, death leaves so much uncompleted. There are so many more things to do and see. Few people are ever ready to die. And Bildad, one of Job's comforters, who gets many things wrong, he rightly warns Job that for the person who doesn't know God, death is the king of terrors in chapter 18, verse 14. Death is the king of terrors. Now I get to, when I take funerals, I, I hear lots of people, they want to read poems out, and often they uh, read a poem called Death is Nothing at All. It's a poem that's often read out. And the author was a guy called Henry Scott Holland. And in 1910, he was a priest at St. Paul's Cathedral. And the king had died and, was, and uh, he was speaking at St. Paul's Cathedral and he wrote those words as part, not of a, it wasn't a poem, he wrote it as part of a sermon. And the sermon was called Death, the King of Terrors. You see, the point that he was making wasn't that death's a friend, he was saying was that that throughout the Old Testament, death looms like a dark shadow. Everyone dreads him. He's no respecter of age, social standing, education, or a person's value to society. None escape his grip. He rules over all. Death is no friend. Death is an enemy. I mean, people can cheat death, but they're simply prolonging the inevitable. And it's no wonder that Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 26 says, The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is an enemy. You see, behind our view of death, though, there is a a bigger question. I'm just going to spend literally a minute or two on this. And the question is this, is there life beyond the grave? Is there life beyond the grave? As we face up to the reality of one day we're going to die. You see, and as you read what Job says in chapter 14, it's a bit confusing. First of all, Job contrasts death with a tree being cut down. He says this, at least there's hope for a tree. If it's cut down, it will sprout again. Its stump may die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put forth shoots like a plant. But man dies and is laid low. He breathes his last and isn't no more. And it's like Job is saying, well, there's a, there's a, at least there's hope for a tree. There's no hope for man. There's nothing. That's it. That seems to be what he's saying. And actually, it's almost as though that Job catches himself uh, in, in the midst of his despair. In the midst of some of this stuff coming out of his mouth, he catches himself. And he cries out just after this moment, If a man dies, will he live again? Job catches himself. Job stops himself going down the road. There is nothing. That's the end. There are so many people in this world who will tell you that life, uh, when you die, that is the end. You are just an amalgam of cells that randomly got together by chance. And when you die, that's it. That's the end of it. 
There is no more. So eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow you die. That's the philosophy of life. It doesn't really matter what you do because actually when you die, that's it. There is no more. Job stops himself going down that route. He won't have any truck with it. He says, he cries out, this, this hope starting to rise within his heart. He raises this great question. What an amazing question to us. Will a man live when he die? Job wants to know the answer. Life after death was not a new concept. People in every generation have believed in the afterlife. Throughout the Old Testament, we read hints and glimpses that God has the power over death. We read about uh, people like Enoch and Elisha and Abraham encountering moments where death is turned back. We read about it with Enoch. We said he walked with God and it's as though he didn't die. That's what the Bible says. He didn't die. He just went to be with God. We read about Elisha raising a little boy from the dead. And so through the Old Testament, there are these little glimpses that there's something beyond death. But it's all shrouded in shadows. It's all, uh, it, we don't see it clearly. Job knows, he senses there's something, but he doesn't, he's not 100% certain, but he's crying out in hope. And his, his cry resounds through the centuries, across the ages, unanswered. Until one day, At a funeral in a village called Bethany, we hear a voice from the graveside. Voices from the graveside, I can tell you, they're not always great. I remember, I just remember some pretty black moments, really, black humour, really, at at my mum's graveside. Just remember it. And I, I smile about it, not because it wasn't sad and a tearful moment, but, but it was just because it was just so bizarre. And so my, my gran is there, and my gran, lovely woman, but my gran was struggling with uh, Alzheimer's. And so short-term memory was, was shot. And so all the way there, she's, she's having moments where you're, you're having the, a conversation repeated, and so she'd say, she'd point at the coffin and say, who's that then? And then you'd, you'd go, oh, Nan, it's... And then about five minutes later, you have the same conversation. And then we get to the graveside, and everybody's quiet. And, you know, my, I can hear my grand to my sister going, who's that then? And my sister going, shh, shh try to, you know, just really... And then my uncle is... It's, You've got to understand this. So my, my family situa- history is a bit complicated. So my dad died when I was young. My dad is buried further along in the grave, in, in the cemetery. My mum married again, and there's a grave. Uh, her and uh, my stepfather have agreed they're going to be buried in the, this new grave. So she's made that decision. Me and my sister don't have any problem with it at all. But for some of my family, it's a real issue. So I just remember, as we're standing by the, I'm standing by the grayside, one of my family comes up to me as the hearse is coming round, and he says, what do you think about your mum being buried here then? I'm like, oh. <laughs> it's not the moment, really, is it? Just really, I said, uh, yeah, it's not the moment to have this conversation, really, is it? He went, no, probably not then. 
I walk some. But you're like, these moments, voices at the graveside, you know, you hear, I've heard all sorts of pe- people say all sorts of things at the graveside. Some of it good, a lot of it uh, 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 unhelpful. But at this particular graveside, we hear something that changes the whole course of human history. This moment is a profound moment. Jesus has been uh, with his disciples, and he gets this message from some of his friends. Two ladies called, two sisters called Mary and Martha, and they send him a message. They say, the one you love, Lazarus, their brother, he's ill. Now, they've sent this message. He's some distance away. When you send a message like that, he's really ill, okay? So Jesus knows that it's serious, that he's, he's in danger of dying. And Jesus says, this is for the glory of God to his disciples. And then it says this. It says, Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, the brother. And the word love means it's, it's God's word for love. It's God's love. It's, it's what the Greek word is agape love, the big, big love. It's all-encompassing, completely loves them. And then it says this. Because he loved them, he stayed an extra few days. That's the sort of reading. When you read it, that's what it says. Because, he said, Jesus loved them, so he stayed a few extra days. Well, he's dying. He's about to die, and Jesus doesn't go to him, doesn't rush to him. And so when Jesus eventually turns up, he's been dead for four days. That's the background to this moment. You see, the point is this, Jesus is the answer. This voice from the graveside is saying, I am the answer. It's poignant that it's at the graveside of a close friend that Jesus answers Job's cry and reveals himself to be the answer to our ultimate problem. This is what he says. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Jesus is acknowledging that death may be the inescapable ending of every human being. But it's much more than that. Jesus is making the point that it's death is really spiritual separation from God. In the book of Genesis, it says that sin, our rebellion, our living without reference to God, means that we have spiritually died. We are spiritually dead. We're dead to God. And so the Bible talks about the wages of sin, if you like, the payment for our sin, our rebellion against God is death. That's what it says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. And this is sort of the, the things explained. I want you to think of it like this. Over here, on this side of the stage, this is death. On this side of the stage is life. The Bible talks about death and life. It says that we are, we are dead to God. We're born dead to God. We're living We're physically alive and we're slowly getting older and we're going to die, but we are dead to God. It's making that point that we're dead to God even though we're physically alive and we're slowly dying. 
And the gospel, the good news of the gospel is that God, who is light, who is life, Jesus came as the light of the world, and his light was the life of men, we're told, and his light shines. Jesus comes, and suddenly we see Jesus. Oh, wow. Jesus. Now we get that moment, there's a choice. Jesus says, Come, believe in me. And when you put your trust in Jesus, you step into life. Now, your body is still dying bit by bit, but you are in life. And that moment of choice, why do some people refuse to follow Jesus? The Bible says, John says, in the book of John it says, they prefer darkness to light. That is the gospel. Jesus is, un, he's, and behind Jesus' statement is, that's what he's talking about. God broke into this dark, sin-sick world when he sent his son Jesus to deal with the problem of sin and death. We're told, in him, Jesus was life, and that life was the light of men, John chapter 1, verse 4. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There is only one way out of that state of death, and that's through Jesus Christ. There is only one way. Reincarnation will not do it. Trying to be a better person won't help you. Jesus is the only one who can reconcile us and take us into a relationship with God, his Father. Jesus is the answer. I want you to notice that Jesus has no fear of death. You see, Jesus knew Lazarus was about to die. One day we're all going to physically die, and God knows exactly when. We're told that Jesus loved Lazarus and his sisters, completely loved them. And yet, for God's glory, Jesus deliberately delayed getting to Bethany such that Lazarus died, or as Jesus puts it, fell asleep. When your body dies and you are in life, you fall asleep. Because literally you close your eyes on this wood and you open them in the life of God, the life that's in Christ. Jesus deliberately delayed getting to Bethany. He wasn't phased by death because he knew what he was about to do. And likewise, Jesus loves us, and sometimes, for his Father's glory, he, dis- he delays responding to our cries in the midst of pain and suffering. Job experienced the most intense pain and suffering, and sometimes there's a delay. God delayed answering Job's cries. Delayed. Job struggles with this delay. Where is God? What is God doing? Calvin says this, whatever may be his delays, he never sleeps and he never forgets his people. He never forgets us. We don't need to fear death. He will not forget us. Jesus had no fear of death. Jesus didn't view death as a friend. When Jesus comes to Lazarus' tomb, he's tearful. We're told that Jesus wept. And the word is, so you've got the, the Jews around the Pharisees, they're wailing. 
It's part of their, the, the way they, uh, 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 they handle death. They, they were wailing. Jesus comes in. It just says there were tears rolling down his cheeks. Jesus was weeping at the sadness at the moment, the grief that his friend Mary was feeling. And yet, we're told that he was deeply moved. The text says he was deeply moved. And the the language is, what it's conveying is, he was angry. He was outraged at what's going on. Now, he wasn't outraged at Mary and Martha's lack of faith. He wasn't outraged at the Pharisees wailing. He was outraged at death. He was outraged at what it did to human beings, at the pain that it caused. A guy called Benjamin Warfield expressed it like this. I want you to listen to this. It's going to come up on the screen. This is profound. The spectacle of the distress of Mary and her companions enraged Jesus because it brought poignantly home to his consciousness the evil of death. It's unnaturalness. It's violent tyranny. In Mary's grief, he sees and feels the misery of the whole race and burns with rage against the oppressor of men. It is death that is the object of his wrath, and beyond, behind death, him who has the power of death and whom he had come in the world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but that's incidental. His soul is held by rage, and he advances to the tomb in Calvin's words as a champion who prepares for conflict. Jesus instructs people to remove the stone across the front of the entrance of the tomb. Martha tries to prevent him. He's been dead for four days. He's gonna, there's going to be a terrible smell. Jesus will have none of it. And he prays and he calls out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. I tell you, if he hadn't Call, if he hadn't used the name Lazarus, he was speaking with such power and with such authority, there would have been many other bodies coming out. He called him by name because Jesus had the power over death. Jesus viewed death as no friend. Finally, we see Jesus' victory over death. You see, Bethany, what happened on that graveside? Those years ago was a precursor to Jesus' death on our behalf on the cross and his subsequent glorious resurrection from the dead three days later. When Jesus rose from the dead, having paid the penalty for our sin, death was defeated once for all. I'm just going to read you some scriptures that sum it up. For he, Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. From 2 Timothy chapter 1. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared their humanity, that so by his death 
He might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. No wonder Paul could be so blasé about living or dying. God wants each one of us to be secure, to be assured in Christ. That if we are in Christ, we are in life, even though our bodies die. See, in the end, Job died full of years. Lazarus died again. Yet because of Jesus' great victory, even though they died, they both now live. That's the great promise of Scripture. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, once said this, Some fine morning you will see in the newspapers, D.L. Moody is dead. Don't you believe it? I shall be more alive that morning than ever before. This is what Paul says. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the answer. He's the answer to the fear of death which grips so many of us. Are you held in fear? Maybe this morning you're struggling because you feel you're living in a period of delay. You go through some difficult times and it just seems that Jesus is taking his time coming to you. He wants you to know this morning that he loves you completely and totally. He's not forgotten you. He's not left you. He loves you. He wants you to know this morning that he is victorious. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, never to die again. He is the firstborn from out among the dead, and because he is risen one day, we too will rise. We, are closer. we will close our eyes on this life, but we will open them in the presence of God. We will be with him forever and ever and ever. Amen. I'm going to ask the band to come out, because we're going to break bread together. We're going to remember and celebrate what Christ has done for us. What we're going to do is we're going to break bread And this is our moment to respond to God in faith. I'm going to encourage you to come and take bread and wine. And the the bread is a symbol of Jesus' body being broken for us. The wine is a symbol of Jesus' blood being shed for us. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Our sins are forgiven. If you know Jesus Christ, if you've given your life to him, if you've put your trust in him, then your sins are forgiven. You have stepped from death to life. And your future is secure. You don't need to be afraid. And so if you've been struggling with fears, 
You can take the bread and wine. You can remind yourself that you have stepped from death to life because of what Christ did for you. Maybe this morning you, you've, you're, you've just been struggling with the delays. As you take bread and wine, you can remember that he loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you on a cross. And if he gave his only son for you, how will he not give you all things? He will not forget you. He promises to never leave you or forsake you. And so you can take the bread and wine and say, thank you, God, that even though I don't feel like it, you are with me. Maybe this morning you're not a follower of Jesus. You've just come and this is maybe one of your first Sundays here. This is an opportunity for you to respond and step from death to life. Christ has come to you and says, come, follow me. You can do that. You can take the bread and wine and you can say, Jesus... Thank you that your body was broken for me. I believe that you died in my place and I'm going to take this bread and wine as a sign that I'm giving my life to you. You can do that this morning. And if you do that, I want to encourage you to come and tell me that you've done it afterwards. So we're going to take the bread and wine and we're going to thank God for his indescribable gift, his son given for us and what he's done for us that we who are dead are now alive. I'm going to encourage you to come and take bread and wine. If you are not a Christian and you don't feel this is appropriate for you, please just allow us to, to work through this for a few moments and you just sit quietly where you are. Come and take bread and wine. Maybe take it for you. Maybe you want to pray by yourself. Maybe you want to pray with somebody else that's fine and then we're going to finish at the end we're going to sing a song together to celebrate Jesus great resurrection
Jesus, we worship you. We thank you that you are our great saviour. Thank you that you broke into our darkness. You came the light of the world. You revealed yourself to us. We weren't even thinking about you or looking for you, but you came to us and you revealed the Father's great love to us. The God of heaven who created the stars, planets, the whole universe, who made us, loves us deeply. And thank you, Jesus, that you've made a way for us to be made right with God. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for who you are. We thank you for your great declaration. Lord Jesus, we believe this with all our hearts. You are the resurrection and the life. You are the resurrection and the life, Lord Jesus. We believe it. We believe in you and we believe that because of that we will live. Because your body was broken for us, your blood was shed for us. We know that even though we die, because we believe in you, because we live in you, we will live forever. Death has no hold over us because we are in Christ, the victorious one. We worship you. We thank you for your great death and resurrection for us. Thank you that you love us completely. Thank you that you never leave us or forsake us. Thank you that even though, Lord God, there's sometimes there are delays and there's struggle, there's struggles and there's strife in this life, we thank you that you are faithful. And so we worship you, Lord Jesus. Come on, let's stand together and let's sing a song to finish that celebrates what Jesus has done on the cross.